Bank of Canada is acting to bring down interest, uh, bring down uh, inflation, and it's working. Our inflation is coming down. At the same time, our job as a government is to be there to support Canadians, to be there with supports for families, be there with supports for kids who need dental care, would be there for supports for Canadians who are struggling right now. Well, that was the Prime Minister in the House of Commons uh, defending his government's fiscal policy approach uh, in light of the Bank of Canada's announcement today that they are further tightening monetary policy, including a quarter point increase in their rate. 4.75% is where the Bank of Canada rate now sits after announcing back in January uh, that they were going to pause increases to see how all of this is playing out. So a couple of things the bank has highlighted. Uh, namely the fact that inflation ticked up in April from 43 to 4.4%, and the GDP numbers we saw last week uh, came in surprisingly strong. In the first quarter of this year, Canada's economy grew at an annualized pace of 3.1%. So the Bank of Canada believes uh, it needs to go further in monetary policy tightening, hence the uh, interest rate increase announced today. So what does this all portend then for the economy? Uh, we're carrying a lot of consumer debt in this country. What about the impact of that? Certainly there's a need maybe to discourage that borrowing, but it is going to have consequences for those who are managing that debt. It's going to have consequences for government and its debt. So joining us to talk more about the decision, some of the uh, impact and ramifications, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Ian Lee, uh, professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Professor Lee, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, my pleasure, Rob. Thank you. There's a lot of speculation as to what the bank was going to do, what it was going to announce today. Were, were you at all surprised, first of all? No, no, I wasn't. And not because I'm clairvoyant. Okay. I, I read all the speeches uh, and the interviews of the Bank of Canada governor and the deputy governors who are the governing council. And it's very clear from their words, they're very transparent, uh, that they are determined and they've said so over and over again, repeatedly for the last year, they're going to get it down to 2% inflation. And they're not there yet. So, you know, you connect the dots and say they're going to get there, but they're not there. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to raise interest rates again to push the inflation rate down further to get it down to their stated objective of 2%. So was that the necessary move then, in your view? It was, but before anyone, I don't want your listeners to think I'm here to tell you what, what wonderful things are in Ottawa, fiscal and, and, and monetary policy. Right. From the get-go, and I mean the day or day, uh, the month or so when COVID arrived back in 2020, I have been criticizing the, the government's, the Bank of Canada, for driving rates far, far, far too low, lower than the Great Depression, lower than World War II, and keeping them far too low for far too long before they finally realized that their mistake. Having said that, that was then. They did screw up. They did. Going down to 0.25 was simply, I believe, was irresponsible. And unless somebody wants to argue that the pandemic was worse than the 10-year Great Depression when one-third of all Canadians were out of work, or worse than World War II when millions and millions of people died. I do not believe the pandemic was even close to that level of, of um, crisis. And we had the Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance at the time going around saying, look, rates have never been so low. Please go borrow and spend. And I just thought that was just, I'm a former banker. 
from years ago. And uh, you know, I just don't think you should ever have a finance minister or a prime minister, no matter what political party, saying to people in Canada, go spend and borrow just like there's no tomorrow. I just don't think that's prudent. I don't think it's responsible. And then the government spent two-thirds of a trillion dollars, far, far more than they needed to. They should have targeted the 16% that lost their jobs who were suffering. But we ended up giving out money to all kinds of extremely profitable companies. And I'm not anti-business. I believe in business. But I also don't believe we should be subsidizing profitable companies. And they were giving money to people that didn't lose their jobs. So we pumped way, way too much stimulus into the system. We put drove interest rates far too low, which is a different type of stimulus. It's called monetary stimulus. And while they didn't cause inflation, they certainly poured a lot of gasoline on the inflation genie or inflation fire when it got ignited by the lockdowns that blew up the supply chains. However, now we have to deal with the problem that was made worse by Ottawa. And uh, unfortunately, interest rates are the best antidote to inflation. And I'm saying that as somebody who lived through, and I know there's people who say, how is that even possible? I'll get to that in a moment. But I lived through, I was in the bank in the 70s. I was there when inflation, millions of other Canadians were there too, when inflation went from 4 to 5 to 6 to 8 to 10 to 12 to 14. And Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau kept kicking the problem down the road. In fact, they were running up very, very large deficits, stimulating the inflation, as I said then and now. And finally, they woke up and said, oh, no, no, we can't keep on doing this. And then they got serious, and they drove interest rates to 20. It was unbelievably painful, creating the worst recession since the Great Depression. And it, it, uh, people lost their jobs. All kinds of people lost their jobs. It caused great suffering. But, but it worked. We killed inflation. Not reduced it. We killed it. We destroyed it for a third of a century until this government went, as I said, and poured some gasoline on the fire. They didn't keep the genie, the inflation genie, in the bottle. Okay, as I said, we, it does work. I lived through it. I saw it when rates were 20%. People stopped buying. People stopped borrowing. We had a rip-roaring recession. I'm not advocating that, but that is unfortunately where you have to go once our politicians are so irresponsible as to allow the inflation to get out of hand. And we did. It went up to eight, over 8%. You just can't run a serious economy with inflation like that. So that's the bad news. But we're, the good news is that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Inflation is down from about 8% a year ago down to mm, around 4-ish. So they're at least going in the right direction. The, the Bank of Canada is going in the right direction. Um, and, uh, but they're not down to 2 and so they're, uh, I predicted they would go up today, and it may have to go up one more quarter point. It just depends on uh, the, the, uh, how strong the economy is. So the numbers are, are surprising lots of people. They're not surprising me uh, because anyone who studies the data, and I'm talking 2020, 2021, 2022, it, the Canadian economy never was going over the cliff in 2020, unlike contrary to what the prime minister was saying at the time. It was incredible resilience in the economy. Christy Freeland, the finance minister in budget 2021, actually said it in writing that they consistently underestimated the strength of the Canadian economy. And so my point being that 
We've got to get the inflation back down to two. I wished the government of Canada would stop running up big deficits to stimulate the inflation, as I like to put it, mm-hmm. obviously sarcastically. Uh, they should not be running big deficits. They shouldn't be running any deficits when the economy is so red hot. And and when your clip when you play to Mr. Trudeau saying, we're going to look after people that need help, nobody, it's demagoguery of his part to say that. Nobody is saying cut people off unemployment insurance. Nobody is saying that. Nobody's saying cut people off that need help. But you can still run a balanced budget. Governments have done it in the past and mm-hmm. still run the unemployment insurance system, the old age pension system, the health care system, and so forth. It just means you make cuts in some of the areas of government spending. The government spends $400 billion a year. And he's saying there's not a dollar that can be cut in there to balance the budget. I just don't believe him because I study public policy. I study government spending. And there's all kinds of room where cuts can be made. But on the, fine, on the interest rate side, Macklem is doing the right thing. Well, unpack that a little bit more. You kind of alluded to it, and I think people wonder, like, what's the connection? Why is this the, the go-to for central banks? Why is this the tried-and-true method? How do higher interest rates help to tame yeah. inflation? No, no, fair question, because I get asked this all the time. Yeah. A, a, a rate increase is the opposite of stimulus. Everyone understands stimulus when there's a recession, like in 2008-9. The call goes out from all kinds of people. Understandably, government's got to get the economy going again because it's, it's collapsed. It's gone negative GDP. So they borrow money, go deficit financing, and they inject it into the economy to stimulate it. A, a rate increase is the exact opposite of, a, of stimulus. You are taking money out of people's pockets to pay the higher interest. You're taking money out of the cash, out of the, the businesses, every business in Canada, because they all have revolving lines of credit. I used to lend money to businesses and, and uh, you know, operating lines of credit. And they're all priced, they're all variable rate loans, prime plus one, prime plus two, et cetera. So when the rate goes up, you're taking money out of the business that they can't, can no longer give in wage increases. You're cooling the economy. And believe me, for those, and I know there's people that don't believe it works, it does. Now, I didn't say at what rate, at what level. It's all contextual. In 1980, we had to go all the way up to 20% to kill the inflation. I am not saying we have to go to 20 this time. I do not believe we do. I don't believe we're going to have to go to eight. I think we might have to go to five from 4.75. Mm-hmm. But that's a long, long way from eight or 10 or 12 or, or 20. So, but to your answer, I'm not trying to fudge it at all. It works by simply taking money out of your pocket and millions of other Canadians and businesses that they can no longer spend on wage increases or going to a restaurant or buying a car or uh, going on a trip. You have less money to spend. That cools the economy. So what about the prospect of a so-called soft landing that will tame inflation but avoid a recession? Is that, is that still realistic at this point? I think it is. And uh, the, uh, this is very different from 1980. Um, for the last 50 years, and I'm talking from, let's say, roughly 1970 to 2020, the boomer half-century. I actually call it that, the boomer half-century. And it could be characterized in one simple sentence. There were way too many workers and not enough jobs. So we had chronically high unemployment. So we had all kinds of unemployment insurance programs, income support programs, just everywhere. That's all we ever talked about for the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. We don't live in that world anymore. The boomer, I'm a boomer. The boomer half century is over. 
even though I'm talking to you and I'm a boomer, it's over. We're now in the millennial and the, the, the Gen X uh, half century. Massive shortages of workers. And so what I'm arguing is is that you, because of those shortages, that changes a whole bunch of things. I think we can cool the economy, and they are cooling the economy, but I do not believe it's going to cause, not even remotely uh, close to the recession that we experienced in 1980, which was very, very deep, and the unemployment rate went up to, I can't remember, 12 or 14%. That's simply not going to happen this time. And so we can uh, cool it, and they're going to cool it down, and um, and we don't have to worry about... Um, uh, you know, a hard landing. I mean, GDP may go, you know, minus 0.2% or something, but that's a quibble. We're not going to see it drop 5% or 8% or 10% negative or something like that. As for fiscal policy, and I think you alluded to it, maybe we're not pouring as much fuel on the fire, but uh, is it your contention that, that the government is still adding some? Yes, yes, absolutely. Any deficit spending is stimulative. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what political party... It doesn't matter how much they spin stories in Washington or Ottawa or other capitals. When you borrow money to inject into the economy, which is what the government's doing, you are stimulating the economy. So we have this bizarre situation in Ottawa where the, the government is stimulating on the fiscal side while they're putting the brakes on on the, on, the, on the monetary side. It's like my late mother, who I love dearly, and she used to drive around Ottawa at 85, and she'd literally drive down the road with one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas simultaneously. Drove me crazy. That's what the government in Ottawa is doing right now. we got to leave it there. Appreciate the insight, uh, as always, on all of this. Professor Lee, thanks again for making some time for us here today. My pleasure, Rob. Thank all you. the best, sir. Take care. Uh, there you go. Uh, always love that perspective. Ian Lee, uh, professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Really a great overview uh, of the situation we're, we're dealing with right now, what the Bank of Canada is trying to do here and why, how the government is still undermining those efforts. So some really important context. walked out of there with that title and uh, we basically usher in a new era. A little snippet there from the A&E Legends biography on one Hussein Ali Vaziri, better known to the world as the Iron Sheik. December of 1983 became World Wrestling Federation champion. Uh, didn't stay in that position uh, long as uh, he dropped the belt to uh, Hulk Hogan. Madison Square Garden in 1984, which very much did kick off a new era in professional wrestling. Uh, The Iron Sheik uh, passed away this week at the age of 81. He was uh, truly iconic in a lot of ways. Uh, You know, pro wrestling used to really be divided into heroes and villains, the baby face and the heels. The Iron Sheik was the embodiment uh, of that villain. Uh, Just the appearance, the shaved head, the curled mustache, the barreled chest, the attitude, all of the political elements that were rolled into his character. But he embraced it, he embodied it, and he was pretty damn good at it. Even once he was done wrestling, he remained a, a prominent figure. He was never really in movies or anything. You see other wrestlers make that transition. But in a lot of ways, I mean, he was a household name kind of made himself into a a social media 
uh, celebrity. Uh, just the way he transferred his persona uh, into the world of social media, Twitter in particular. Uh, he did have an accent, but that didn't hold back uh, the appeal of his uh, promos, as they call them in the biz, uh, because they were always, always entertaining. To the garden spot of America, Worcester, Massachusetts. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen, intelligent American. Anywhere I go, just like you, they give me great welcome. And they said welcome to the American, Mr. Sheik, because you deserve it to be a number one. Now, all of the sons, anywhere I go, American bring the American people. They call you can't wait to get to the Worcester, Alabama. I mean, Worcester, Massachusetts. Just a minute. Don't interrupt me now. Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, Menacing yet funny, in a way, I suppose. Uh, The Iron Sheik there with uh, Mean Gene, or uh, Gene Mean, as he always called him. So he was truly one of a kind and definitely being mourned uh, throughout the world wrestling, or throughout the wrestling world, that is, uh, and amongst fans. Our next guest had a great write-up on all this. You can find at uh, Forbes.com. Alfred Kanua is a pro wrestling columnist and contributor at Forbes.com. Alfred, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, great to be here, Rob. You did a great job eulogizing Iron Sheik. I agree with everything you said. Well, and yeah, I mean, I come up, it came up in that area. I think you know, I was I was ten years old in 1984, so old enough to to find and watch wrestling, but still young enough to be like terrified by this guy. <laughs> what was it about him? He had that aura. He had that thing that you need in the wrestling business in order to connect. And it's that thing that you can't quite teach. I think you either have it or not. There's been a lot of wrestlers who came along the business who were legitimately tough guys, like the Iron Sheik. He had a very accomplished background as an amateur Greco-Roman wrestler. Uh, But they just didn't have that character that they were able to transcend to the masses. So despite being such a tough guy, they weren't able to make people care about it. And then on the flip side, you had a lot of over-the-top wrestlers, a Hulk Hogan type, an ultimate warrior type, who they were great characters, but maybe they weren't as respected as wrestlers. And Iron Sheik was the whole package in terms of a guy who not only did he have a legitimate background, not only could he go into that wrestling ring and stretch anybody, as they say, or legitimately beat up anybody he wanted, not only could he do that, but he also had that great magnetic character. And you had that line where you said menacing yet funny. I think that's his legacy. To me, the Iron Sheik is the greatest combination of legit tough guy and pro wrestling character that we've ever seen. And it's something that we continue to see replicated in wrestling to this day. Yeah, he wasn't the first villain in in the wrestling business. I mean, you know, there were others that sort of paved the way for him, but but he really, I think, defined it for those who came after him, right? Absolutely, and I think what people need to realize is we think of Iron Sheik as this foreign heel, and that's definitely a big part of his legacy in terms of being a menacing foreign heel, and he really knew how to stoke those flames of xenophobia among uh, American fan base. Instead of just being like a Neanderthal from another country, he was able to articulate to people why he was better than you, why his country was better than yours. But his spiritual successor to me was Kurt Angle, who was to me a great native And that's something I don't think people focus on enough, is that Kurt Angle was basically the American version of the Iron Sheik. He was an Olympic gold medalist who used his patriotism to antagonize Americans by saying that he was better than them and why he should be respected. And he was a great foil for an anti-establishment good guy in Stone Cold Steve Austin at the time uh, who represented the anti-establishment while Kurt Angle represented more um, you know, patriotism and doing things wholesomely mm-hmm. and the right way. So I, I think that uh, Iron Sheik had a profound impact on any type of heel outside of just foreign heel. 
Well, maybe in the business, there's such a thing as too much heat, right? Uh, where maybe you get people too worked up. And it was an interesting line that he walked because, I mean, when, when he started out in the 70s, you know, people didn't really think about, think much of anything about Iran. Then you get the uh, revolution in Iran. Then you get the hostage crisis. Now, all of a sudden, you know, Iran is like uh, public enemy number one. And here's this character who's, you know, aligning himself with the Iranian regime, who's uh, bombastic and belligerent and almost rubbing in people's faces and down with the USA and Iran number one. Like, uh, he pushed that and he, he took it to, uh, you know, this, this whole other level. But I would imagine that that led to some pretty dicey situations for him. It absolutely did. It, and this was an era where people, a lot of people still believed wrestling was real. And I'm talking about the casual viewers and right. even the people who followed it closely. They would see this. Iranian guy come into a wrestling promotion and talk about how much better Iran was. So you could only imagine not only is he playing with their feelings in terms of playing a character, but a lot of people took that seriously. And WWE did it. They didn't learn their lesson from that because they brought him back in the 90s for WrestleMania 7, which was an infamous angle with Sergeant Slaughter, who was a former Patriot who turned coat and became an Iraqi sympathizer. Right. And they used, you know, Iron Sheik to do that in the height of uh, tensions with America. I believe that was during Desert Storm. So uh, this is something that, yes, he did get too much heat. You can always argue how much heat is good heat, right? A lot of wrestlers would argue that the wrong type of heat is when people don't care. Apathy is the worst type of heat. And I think that anybody can unequivocally say that that is the worst type of heat. But at the same time, to your point, you really don't want people threatening your lives and sending death threats like they did to Sergeant Slaughter and threatening to kill Iron Sheik like what was happening during the 80s at, at his peak. There's a fascinating legend around the Iron Sheik. So uh, in 83, he, he wins the WWF title from Bob Backlund. And then not much longer, I think a couple months later, Hulk Hogan arrives in the United States and, and he defeats Iron Sheik for the title. And the whole Hulk Hogan, WWF, rock and wrestling era begins. Um, but there was a, a rumor, and I guess it was um, Vern Gagne, right, who had ran a competitor, the AWA, was mad that Hulk Hogan had, had abandoned him. And he offered the Iron Sheik $100,000 to break Hulk Hogan's leg. <laughs> what do we know about that story? Well, that is a very prevalent rumor that has been confirmed by a lot of very knowledgeable people within the wrestling business, whether it's media types, whether it's wrestlers. A lot of people do believe that. Whether or not Vern Gagne would have actually paid Iron Sheik is a completely different story. <laughs> but I truly believe that Vern Gagne did offer... Iron Sheik, whether it's $75,000 or $100,000, the number is $100,000, but um, a sum of money, let's say, to break Hulk Hogan's leg because this was around the time that WWF was becoming a national territory that was threatening promotions like AWA, which did go out of business shortly after Hulk Hogan's ascent. Hulk Hogan was a guy who was made in AWA, so you can imagine the tensions that Vern Gagne had for his number one guy leaving the territory and making this national promotion that threatened him. So he had every reason in the world to at the very least, sabotage this event. Uh, there are similar stories about WrestleMania 1, how people try to sabotage that. But yes, there's a prevalent story that Vern Gagne, promoter from Minnesota's AEWA territory, did offer Iron Sheik a sum of money to, to legitimately break Hulk Hogan's leg and thereby ruin Hulkamania before it even started, which did not happen. Iron Sheik did do business, and the rest is history. 
There's another interesting story, too, and it, it, and it speaks to something you alluded to in, in that era in the 80s where the business was very protective of the storyline that, you know, this is all real and they want the fans to believe it. You don't do anything or say anything to, to give any of those secrets away. So here it is, I think, 87 maybe, and the Iron Sheik and Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and they were in a big feud and Hacksaw was the good guy, the Iron Sheik, the bad guy. They get arrested. They were driving together. I think cops found some drugs in the vehicle. Nothing much really came of it in a legal sense. But that was like a big deal at the time, wasn't it? It really was. It's a moment that I think helped shape modern-day wrestling, and I don't think it gets the credit it deserves because that's what kind of opened Vince McMahon's eyes to the fact that even when people find out that it's not real, they don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, Some people will be heartbroken, but you can still operate a wrestling business under the guise that it's not real, and fans will still support it. And by learning that, Vince McMahon was able to go to the commissions and say, we don't want to be licensed. We're fake. We're going to admit that we're fake so that we don't have to pay all these fees to be licensed. And that scenario with Iron Cheek and Jim Duggan, when it happened, WWE was panicking. Before uh, they, they saw that the reaction was actually, you know, people were able to support the product, they were panicked that this was going to destroy the business, obliterate kayfabe. You could not have picked two worst selections of people that fans would see hanging out because Jim Duggan was this kind of like on the vein of Hulk Hogan, a very patriotic guy. His catchphrase is saying USA, he carried around the hacksaw, said, oh, and Iron Sheik is the Iraqi or Iran um, heel, the foreign heel. And here they are not only hanging out, but also doing drugs. So that is a bad look for the <laughs> yeah. company. So this was a very serious incident that really threatened the wrestling business. But thankfully, people were okay with the fact that it was fake. Your piece touched on some of the tributes from those in the wrestling world, some big names. The Rock, the video he posted, you know, he used to, he grew up in the business. He, you know, he used to call him Uncle Sheiky, right? Uh, yeah. Which speaks to how well-known he was, how beloved he was. I mean, for all the on-screen persona and bombast, he was, uh, from all accounts, just a real gentle guy, a devoted husband, like kind of the opposite of what we saw on our television. Yeah, a very beloved man, somebody who the boys loved, somebody who people loved talking to. Uh, I, we watch that Iron Sheik documentary, which I've seen so many times, and one thing that stands out, they go to these wrestling conventions, and the wrestlers, just when they see him, they just light up. And it's funny, as soon as a wrestler sees Iron Sheik, they have a story. They just said, oh, man, Iron Sheik is here. Man, remember in Memphis, we did this, that, and the third, and they all have the greatest stories about hanging out with Iron Sheik, so he is universally almost beloved by the wrestling locker room, by fans, and for a guy who played such a great heel, and you could argue, you could argue the greatest heel, somebody who belongs on Mount Rushmore of heels when it comes to wrestling, he was a beloved man. And that is not too often in wrestling do you find somebody who's so hated on screen and so beloved behind the screen. Yeah, and that's, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, it's not like he became a movie star or anything, but I think in a lot of ways he is a household name. People know the name Iron Sheik. People can picture that that shaved head and the mustache and the barreled chest, uh, that he was, you know, bigger than life, was bigger than the business. And I don't know if it was just about, you know, how good he was at it at the time or something else, maybe just the way, too. I mentioned how he became like this Twitter personality, just how he transferred that that character into the social media world. What do you make of that longevity he seemed to have as someone so recognizable? 
Yeah, and I think you make a good point in terms of the Second Life on Twitter because I was blown away by the national worldwide coverage. Unfortunately, we just lost superstar Billy Graham, which is a contemporary of Iron Sheik. He's right up there with a guy who's influential in the business. And this superstar Billy Graham was a big wrestling story, and a couple of national outlets covered it, but it was nothing compared to the amount of coverage that this got. Just strictly from a media standpoint, uh, I just noticed so much coverage, so much reaction to Iron Sheik uh, of my article. And um, I do think that a lot of that is his second life on social media he was one of the pioneers he was very early on in twitter and in youtube he got on and became a fixture and i think a lot of people know him for that and don't even know that he was a wrestler didn't even weren't even around for his wrestling days just know him as that ex-wrestler on social media so i think that really helped his reach in terms of when he passed away it was this worldwide event we are one of a kind Uh, your write-up is mentioned it's up at forbes.com alfred thanks so much for joining us here today really appreciate it Thank you, Rob. All the best. Take care. There you go. That's uh, Alfred Canu. He's a pro wrestling columnist, a contributor at Forbes, Forbes.com, covers the wrestling business, the MMA business, which, of course, are kind of uniting into one business. Uh, but, yeah, the Iron Sheik, he was uh, quite something. You think about the, the greatest villains. I like how he put it, the Mount Rushmore villains. Yeah, he'd be right up there. Welcome back. Turning your attention to the situation in Ukraine, uh, we're expecting a Ukrainian counteroffensive to commence fairly soon. Uh, and this could be a big moment uh, in this conflict. Now, there's the whole situation being dealt with right now following the destruction of this dam, which has led to significant flooding and perhaps was done intentionally to cause delays and distractions for the Ukrainian military. Uh, many of whom are now involved in civilian rescue missions uh, due to this flooding. Uh, so we don't know exactly what happened to the dam, but it's it's easy to see how this could perhaps benefit Russia. But again, I think there is still some optimism regarding what Ukraine has been able to to withstand thus far and the prospects for a, a counteroffensive here as we get to, into the summer. So what's necessary at this point to ensure that Ukraine is in a position to succeed, to ensure then, even after that, that Ukraine can uh, secure its own future and its own destiny. So there's a new report, or at least an updated version of a report that was released earlier this year, an updated edition of a comprehensive strategy to secure Ukraine's future. That's been spearheaded by the Alphen Group, the Hague Center for Security Strategy, the Norwegian Atlantic Council, and also the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. You can read more at cgai.ca. But joining us on the line here this afternoon to talk more about this whole situation and this uh, updated report is Colin Robertson, who's a former Canadian diplomat, is also vice president and fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, Colin, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you again, Rob. All right. So first of all, let me get your, your assessment of where things stand in, in Ukraine and the aftermath of the, the uh, destruction of this dam and the impact that might have, but also looking ahead to this uh, expected Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive here. Well, I think uh, probably best uh, characterized by the Ukrainian defense minister who, when asked to comment, put his finger to his lips and just said, shh. I think that was probably uh, a a realistic uh, appreciation. If you are going to launch a counteroffensive, you don't want to sort of let the other side know what you're doing. And uh, uh, certainly the Russians have launched, have in the early part of the spring launched their offensive, as we know, around several places, Bakhmut and others, and uh, did not make any the progress that they wanted. And, of course, there were divisions on the Russian side with the mercenaries they've employed as well. So now it's uh, up to the Ukrainians. 
they they have the capacity, although they would like more, and that is the, the constant refrain of the Ukrainian leadership, especially President Zelensky, who when he was at the G7 last month in Hiroshima once again said, more arms, more money. And uh, that that will be important. Uh, the West has come through, but slowly, and we we note this in the report incrementally. Uh, they, they now have tanks, but they would now like to have training on F-16s, and I think that's now going to take place, but then they'll want F-16s as well. They are, of course, waging, from their perspective, an existential war with Russia. The Russian, uh, Mr. Putin, is determined to take over, and not just to militarize and denazify, as he once put it, but to basically integrate Ukraine into uh, Russia, which the, the Iranian people are fighting for their lives to prevent. Right. I think we're starting to see an indication that if Putin can't uh, conquer and rule Ukraine, he's, he's prepared to destroy it on the way out. So they well, very much course, a, an policy, I think this, the, the destruction of the dam is, is just another piece in the yeah. puzzle. So we talk about what's necessary for success, but how do we define success at this point? What, what are the aims outlined in, in this report? Well, we say success will be defined by the Ukrainians themselves. Uh, it is they who have to decide, and they have been very clear. It is the recovery of all their land going back to the original invasion in 2014, which means taking back the Donbass and Crimea. Um, obviously, practicality enters into this, and that's why this offensive is important to see where the battle lines are come late fall as to how far the uh, Ukrainians have been able to make progress. They made progress last fall, and uh, this is what this offensive is all about. And obviously, where you are and where you stand will have, will have implications going forward. Mr. Putin seems determined to be at war for the foreseeable future. His, his view is that he can wait out the West and that we'll lose... Uh, interest and patience with what's going on and that'll have an effect uh, on the, the arms and funding that's being provided to Ukraine and that's one of the things that we address and say no we've, we've got to make sure that doesn't happen because Putin's long-term gain is to regain not just Ukraine but to to go back to the boundaries of what were the Soviet Union prior to 1989. Yeah, I, I do wonder in the West if there's been, you know, some level of fatigue as this conflict has dragged on or we've been distracted by other issues. Does it feel like our support has waned at all through through all of this? Uh, I think that's, that is certainly something analysts are looking to observe. But I, I must say I have been uh, uh, pleasantly surprised by the level of support. And again, I go back to the meetings uh, of, of NATO foreign ministers, which took place a week and a half ago. That our own foreign minister was at, and then the uh, the G7 meeting, uh, where there were a number of partner nations as well. And I, I don't I don't see the West losing its interest. And certainly, the the uh, the biggest change, of course, has been the shift uh, on the part of Finland and Sweden from being non-aligned nations, going back to earlier this century and even last century, to making application and Finland is now a full member of NATO and Sweden would like to become one that the Turks and the Hungarians are holding up that yeah. that application but that they are effectively reintegrating their military into the uh, into in, into partnership with with NATO and that's made 
the Baltic essentially a NATO lake. So, I, uh, and and countries like Poland and certainly the on the, on the eastern front, they, uh, the NATO has now decided to beef up its presence there, and that includes the Canadians. And we're going to have to triple the number of troops that we've got leading the Enhanced Forward Brigade in uh, Latvia, for example. Uh, so in the short term, you mentioned the, the support for Ukraine, providing them with the, the arms that they need. Uh, when it comes to the, the economic side or, you know, isolating Russia, is there more that can be done on that side? Well, I think that there are still more sanctions that can be implied, but more importantly, applying the sanctions that are already in place. Uh, we recommend that the, the system by which you do financial transactions called the SWIFT system, that Russia be completely cut off because there are still loopholes there. Uh, particularly allowing for them to gain funding from the sale of, of oil and gas, which they now do with a cap on it, but that still is what's funding the Russian war machine. And uh, uh, that will be important. They will probably continue to try and sell to uh, India and China, and India and China are both buying a lot of oil and gas from Russia, but make it more difficult so they have to do it in either rubles or yen or some other form of currency and not use the, the traditional form. You alluded to this as well. I mean, it speaks to Putin's aims, you know, the question of what are the consequences uh, of any kind of degree of, of Russian victory or, or success here. What, what is at stake? Well, I think that it, it is essentially the if, if Putin were to be successful in Ukraine, he will not stop there. And I think it would also embolden Xi Jinping in China to move into Taiwan, because if they felt that the West ultimately folded. Uh, I do think that the, that the support that China provided to uh, Putin last February before the war began, just as the Olympics were taking place in China, was predicated that, okay, you do Ukraine and we'll do Taiwan. Uh, and the the deterrence of this and, the, and the defeats that the Russians have endured, I think the Chinese have taken note, but mm-hmm. even today, you probably reported on the uh, Chinese planes that went into Taiwanese airspace, for example, they're they're constantly pressuring Taiwan, and that would upset the balance in the Indo-Pacific, which, from uh, certainly from the American perspective, is the more important theater. Absolutely. We'll see where it all goes from here. Uh, this uh, latest report is mentioned. It's at cgai.ca. Colin Robertson, uh, thanks again for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. All the best. Uh, that is Colin Robertson. Uh, he is vice president and fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, a former Canadian diplomat uh, himself, also we, an executive fellow with the University of Calgary School of Public Policy and a distinguished senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, so some thoughts from him on the you know what's at stake in Ukraine, where this all needs to go in the short term, and talking about this uh, updated report that the CGI was involved in. Uh, the updated edition of a comprehensive strategy to secure Ukraine's future. And that's very much what Ukraine is is fighting for here. Its future, being able to determine its own future. And welcome back. We'll get back to more of your phone calls. A couple other issues I do want to get to in our time remaining here. But let's turn our attention to the conversation that's happening in Canada around journalism and local news and the pressure that's all under and what to do about it. The federal government thinks it has the solution. It's Bill C-18, which targets big tech and social media platforms. We're going to charge them for linking to news, and we're going to use that to help fund journalism in Canada. 
problem is, you know, the whole premise here, why do we not want uh, these platforms linking to news? Isn't that how we access news? That these services can take us to uh, the news that's being generated and posted by news agencies. So we've kind of got a contradictory approach here that linking to news is bad, so we have to charge you for that. But it's a valuable service that you'd better keep providing. Because somewhat predictably, I suppose, Google, we already saw them uh, try this out. Now Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, is doing the same. We'll just stop linking to news. So if you're going to charge us for doing something, one option we have is to not do it. And if you think what we're doing is bad, then we'll see how you do without it. So it's got the government kind of trapped here. Because what's the point of this if these platforms aren't going to be linking to news in the first place? So the response from the prime minister today, when asked about it, asked if he's willing to, to sit down and talk to these companies, seems as though he's taking a much more combative approach here. The various internet giants like Meta are posting every year record profits. Well, at the same time, local independent news is struggling across this country. We know Canadians rely on thoughtful, independent news sources uh, to keep them apprised of what's going on in their communities and indeed around them in the world. The fact that these internet giants would rather cut off Canadians' access to local news than pay their fair share is a real problem. And now they're resorting to bullying tactics to try and get their way. It's not going to work. Canadians know how important news is and access to quality local journalism particularly is essential for not just the well-being of their communities, for the well-being of our democracy. We will continue to make sure that these incredibly profitable corporations contribute to strengthening our democracy, not weakening it. But how are we going to do that exactly? Trudeau says that's not going to work, these tactics. Maybe not in the sense that the government's going to back down. But in terms of any kind of meaningful impact here, there's really not much we can do. Google and Facebook aren't profitable because they provide news on their platforms. It's a pretty minor component uh, to what these companies actually do. They'll be fine if they stop doing this. I don't know if we will be. So it feels to me like this is a, a rather counterproductive approach. But what is needed, though? Because there's a real problem underneath all of this. To that end, a really interesting uh, new paper out today from the McDonald laurier Institute on how uh, a meaningful and productive national news media policy could actually improve and save journalism and local news in Canada and what that would actually look like. Well, joining us to talk more about it is one of the authors of this piece, Peter Menzies, is a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute, previously was editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald, a news, uh, national newspaper award-winning journalist, was also a vice chair of the CRTC for a spell. You can read this report for yourself, McDonaldLaurier.ca. Peter Menzies joins us on the line here this afternoon. Peter, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, wonderful to talk with you again, Rob. It was interesting today, the, the Again, defending Bill C-18, I think despite some of the concerns that maybe big tech platforms might simply stop providing access to news for Canadians, that maybe this isn't really going to help anything. Before we talk about this paper, your thoughts on some of the problems around C-18 and why it's not the way forward for media in Canada. 
Yeah, the problem with C-18 is it's based on this false premise that big big tech companies are stealing something from, you know, a certain segment of the uh, national media landscape uh, in terms of old newspapers and that sort of stuff. Certainly, they've had an impact on them. The entire Internet has had an impact on them. Uh, Kijiji had a huge impact on them. Craigslist had a huge impact on them. All these old legacy media, if you want to use that term, in other words, the media that we grew up with, I get that we're surrounded with. And so we're going through a disruptive time change. But C-18 is too confrontational. It's based on a false premise and a, it's a rather savage accusation. And uh, it's gonna, it looks like it's headed to do more harm than good. Let's talk about where we could actually do some good then. So this paper lays out a new national news media policy. So before we talk about that policy, what what are we identifying as the problem here? What's the problem that needs to be solved? The problem is that we're going through a period of transition, right? We had uh, for many, many years, and I'll try to summarize it as quick as I can. You know, in the 15th century, the printing press was invented and the world changed. And in the 20, in the late 20th century, the World Wide Web was invented and the world's changing. Almost same, you know, the way we communicate is changing almost significantly. So we've been used to, in this country, 225 years or 50 years of newspapers and about 100 years of radio. Um, it's just about, I think it's this year, it's 100 years since the first radio station was launched in Canada, mm-hmm. and about 60 years of television and all of that is converging into the online world. And uh, what you call new as the newspaper business before is having to transition from an advertising-based model to a subscription-based model. Um, not everybody's going to make it, but what we need is a, a forward-looking uh, industrial policy for the news industry that helps build a sustainable economic uh stable economic uh, foundation that they can build upon going in the, through the years ahead because a well-informed public is uh, a, an important part of uh, having a, a healthy liberal democracy. Right, and so I think that raises some interesting issues then. So the digital transformation that's happening, this is about supporting that transformation and that transition. And, and I guess, you know, not, not everybody's going to make it through, and there will still be lo- winners and losers in, in this industry. But in what ways can the government at least support that transformation? Well, there's, there's different frameworks. And what we've proposed in, in this policy is like right now you've got you know, three or four different funds. One's the periodicals fund that uh, that supports uh, publications, magazines, and that sort of stuff. And that was actually meant to, you know, subsidize them for their postal costs. Like anybody has postal costs anymore of, in, of significance. You deliver your product digitally these days. And, and it's, there's sort of this ad hoc mix of funds and that sort of stuff. And you don't fix anything as significant as what the news industries, this shift the news industry is going through with just a fund. You have to have a broad strategy. So the paper that Conrad von Finkenstein and I have put together, and Conrad's, uh, you know, a very, very distinguished public servant, uh, yeah. chair of the CRTC, et cetera, um, it has a number of points to it. One of them is a fund uh, in terms of, but it's, but it's, and, and tech, Companies do have to, foreign tech companies do have to pay into it, which I think is not unreasonable. They gather they gather data uh, from from uh, from viewers and readers and that sort of stuff. And you can't just be taking money out of this country and not giving anything back. So that's not unreasonable in terms of that. And I don't think it's contentious. 
They can't avoid it um, by just blocking news because there's none of this C-18 paper linkage nonsense in terms of that. Another item is making your subscription. If you're subscribing to a service, whether it's a uh, you know, a webinar, whether it's a, what we used to call newspapers or what maybe even a future CBC or even future commercial radio, if you're, if you're buying a subscription to it, that that subscription be 100% tax, tax deductible. That way you are, in a sense, incenting a behavior that you think is good, but the subsidy, if you want to call it that, isn't going to the corporate company. It's going to the reader, viewer, or listener right. in, in, in terms of that thing. And another the huge aspect, a necessary aspect to it, is the complete decommercialization of the CBC, um, getting it completely out of the advertising business. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect to to this this whole debate in Canada. You know, the extent to which the CBC can leverage its public funding uh, to to try to to grow its ad revenue. So they're actually undermining uh, the very news industry that the government says it's it's trying to support. It seems counterproductive. Well, no, absolutely. You've got you've got the government. I mean, the C, I mean, the CBC radio is one thing, but the CBC is kind of it's this two headed monster where it's. Some days it's your pub, your happy, friendly public broadcaster, and then other times, if you're one of its competitors, it's it's a uh, rapacious commercial competitor. You know, like yeah. uh, fighting fighting for advertising rates, right, and uh, and fighting for audiences and that sort of stuff. Broadcasters have come. When I was at the CRTC, broadcasters complained about it constantly. Basically, why am I paying my taxes to subsidize my competitor? Right. Right. And and in radio, it didn't matter too much. Guys didn't care about it too much because radio didn't fight for advertising, right? But now in the online world, everybody's fighting for advertising there. Like even CBC Radio was used in, in the online world and CBC Television. But now CBC in the online world is essentially the country's largest publisher as well mm-hmm. because of it, because of its uh, very popular website and its uh, deep-pocketed news resources. You talked about the CRTC, which still you know regulates television, regulates radio. I guess now we're going to through Bill C eleven try to get somehow the CRTC to also regulate online content. Uh, you, this report talks about reevaluating the CRTC's role. I mean, you've worked in there, Conrad Van Finkenstein has, has worked in there. What, what do you think needs to change at the CRTC? Well, it needs to be coordinated with everything else that's going on. The CRTC, for instance, when it did when it looked, and there's one going on right now for the Calgary market. They're looking at whether to Make a call for for uh, uh, compet- have a competition to see if somebody can launch a new radio station in Calgary. I didn't think there was any spectrum left, but it, obviously somebody's thought has found a piece of spectrum that they think they can use. But when they do the economic market analysis, the CRTC would always just look at how many radio stations are in the market, and how many or how many television stations are in the market. All they looked at is what how many broadcasters were in the market. When you look at the the, the media business today, everything, I mean, broadcasters still exist, newspapers still kind of exist, um, and, that's, and, and television stations still kind of exist, but everything is converging into the online world, right? So, yeah. so that's what you need to look at. And if you're only doing a market analysis the way they do it, based on, you know, how many radio stations are there, you're not really doing a proper competitive analysis. The other thing the CRTC does is it makes a lot of stations do news that don't really want to do news, right? There's stations in 
in in in in your market in Calgary that really just want to play the type of music they want to play, right? right. Like I don't want to accuse anybody individually, but <laughs> right. we both know we both know Conrad and I have talked about this. Like you know, sometimes with the broadcasters, getting them to do news, it's like you had to make them. They were kicking and screaming, like, "Why do we have to do news? Our market is already well served by news radio, right?" Mm-hmm. If I want to listen to news, I turn on your I, I, I tune you in. Mm-hmm. If I want to listen to, you know, pop music of some variety, I go someplace else. I don't go there for news. So why is the CRTC maybe you know flooding the news market in a way it doesn't have to? I don't mean that they have to change, but they just need to be conscious of the whole world and not disruptive in it. So that's another point here, and the, the, the report addresses that, and that's the independence of media. And I know there's a concern when government gets too involved in, quote-unquote, helping the media, there's the possibility that some of that independence can be compromised or the media becomes reliant on, on government. How do we ensure, you know, that we're limiting the government involvement here, that we're maintaining the independence uh, of the free press? Well, um, with our, you know, with, with, within this paper, what we've done is like the, the Bill C-18, let's use Bill C-18 as the sort of uh, uh, archetype bad model in terms of this. The, the way it's set up is it's sort of forcing these pretend commercial deals on big tech companies and, 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 uh, uh, and, and, and news, news providers. And then it's got the CRTC overseeing it, right? Yeah. And the CRTC can request certain information. And just at the Senate hearings last week, you know, the, even News Media Canada, which is the big push behind Bill C-18, and, you know, more uh, elegantly was, uh, even more elegantly was uh, Philip Crawley, the publisher of the Globe and Mail, saying we need this bill amended because it, it allows the CRTC to go snooping around our newsroom. And, you know, uh, particularly newspaper people are kind of like, hey, the CRTC's got, nobody has any business in our newsroom except ourselves. Right. You know, the old line that the state has no place in the newsrooms of the yeah. nation sort of, sort of things. So even the image of that, I think, causes, you know, listeners, viewers, readers to to doubt what's going on. It causes, you know, it's, it's really easy to raise suspicions these days. And and that undermines trust. And what you and all other media depend upon is that people trust you to be an honest broker of of news and information, and and not um, having to cater to anybody, particularly the government. So we want we want to make sure that there's that that any fund that is created is controlled only by the industry itself, and that the, there's a complete firewall between it and the government. Very important and some very interesting ideas in this uh, paper. As mentioned, McDonaldLaurier.ca on a new national news media policy. Peter Menzies, thank you so much for the insight in all this and appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Thanks, Rob. Always a pleasure. Have a great week. All right, you as well. There you go, Peter Menzies, uh, former journalist, former editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald, former vice chair of the CRTC, currently now senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.